Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome back. Today we will be covering Mosiah chapters 9 through 11 in the Book of Mormon. We'll talk about the Nephite group who returned to the land of Nephi to reclaim their homeland. We'll be introduced to King Noah or Wicked King Noah, as people like to call him. And King Noah, we'll meet him in chapter 11, it turns out he was less of an oppressive tyrant and really he was more like a frat boy with a credit card and we're also going to meet Abinadi. First though, we need to answer our trivia question from last time. King Limhi and his people were in captivity to the Lamanites. Limhi sent a group of men north looking for Zarahemla, hoping the Nephites living in Zarahemla could come south to the land of Nephi and rescue them from the Lamanites. But instead of finding Zarahemla, they went too far north and found a land full of bones, ruined buildings, and rusted weapons and armor. And they also found 24 golden plates with writing on them. So our trivia question from last time was, who wrote the plates discovered by King Limhi's search party? We won't find the answer to that until we reach the Book of Ether toward the end of the Book of Mormon. Our answer is in Ether chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 6. And now I, Moroni, proceed to give an account of those inhabitants who were destroyed by the hand of the Lord upon the face of this north country. And I take mine account from the 20 and 4 plates, which were found by the people of Limhi, which is called the Book of Ether. And then skipping down to verse 6. And on this wise do I give the account. He that wrote this record was Ether. And he was a descendant of Coriander. So the answer to the question is Ether. Ether was the name of the man who wrote the plates discovered by Limhi's search party. Now we return to Mosiah 9. Mosiah 9 through Mosiah 22 contains, as the introduction header says, the record of Zenith, an account of his people from the time they left the land of Zarahemla until the time that they were delivered out of the hands of the Lamanites. Zenith joined the first expedition from Zarahemla to the land of Nephi. This was during the reign of Amalekai, which we find in the book of Omni. He introduced himself as, quote, having been taught in all the language of the Nephites. That claim is a little different from the claim made by Nephi, Mosiah, and the others who kept the Nephite record. They all said that they were taught in the language of their fathers, which was Egyptian, as we discussed in Mosiah chapter 1. But either way, it's interesting that Zenith summarized his education in his self-introduction. This is something that Hugh Nibley has said that ancient writers in this part of the world did, has included these self-introductory paragraphs. Zenith wrote that he was part of the Nephite group that traveled from Zarahemla to the land of Nephi, where Lehi's family first settled. The group was not happy about having lost their lands to the Lamanites, and they assumed that they would need to reclaim their lands by force. Before attacking the Lamanites, though, they sent a search party to spy on their forces and gather information that would allow the Nephite army to destroy them. Zenith was part of this intelligence gathering operation. But when Zenith, quote, saw that which was good among them, 
he was desirous that they should not be destroyed. So Zenith confronted the army leader and suggested that they try to make a treaty with the Lamanites rather than trying to kill them. His suggestion was not accepted by the leader, who Zenith describes as an austere and a bloodthirsty man. Instead, this leader responded by attempting to kill Zenith. Intense fighting broke out until the greater number of their army was destroyed in the wilderness. From Omni chapter 1 verse 28, we learn that only 50 of the original group survived the battle and returned to Zarahemla. After returning to Zarahemla, Zenith, who now looking back in retrospect as he writes his record, he describes himself as being, quote, overzealous to inherit the land of our fathers. He led a second group of people, which Omni chapter 1 verse 29 calls a considerable number, back to the land of Nephi to possess the land. This time, with Zenith in charge, they tried a diplomatic approach. When they neared the land of Nephi, Zenith set up camp, and he left his large group of people there camped out in the same spot where the previous expedition had self-destructed, and he took five men with him to meet with King Laman, who was the king of the Lamanites. King Laman was more than happy to let Zenith and his people return. He said they could have the lands of Lehi-Nephi and Shilom, he even asked the Lamanites living there to move out to make room for him. Now, while this might have seemed like a kind gesture, it was actually a trap. The king's long-term plan was to let the Nephites improve and develop the area and then enslave them. But not knowing this, Zenith and his group moved in. In addition to planting farms, they began to rebuild the cities of Lehi, Nephi, and Shilom. The original Nephite walls around these cities were still standing but had fallen into disrepair during the Lamanite occupancy. Here's verse 8. And we began to build buildings and to repair the walls of the city, yea, even the walls of the city of Lehi-Nephi and the city of Shilom. For twelve years the Nephites grew and prospered and dwelled in peace. But King Laman began to be concerned that they might soon become too strong to conquer. So he stirred up his people, the Lamanites, and encouraged them to attack the Nephites. So, 13 years after the Nephites arrived, a Lamanite group invaded the land of Shilom. The people in Shilom retreated to the city of Nephi and asked Zenith for protection. Zenith armed everyone. He armed his people with swords, slings, and, quote, all manner of weapons which we could invent. And then, remembering how their fathers had been delivered from similar attacks, they prayed for help and then went against the Lamanites in battle. From the way Zenith described it, I had pictured the Nephites driving out a small group of Lamanites who were stealing their flocks and crops, but the numbers of this battle suggest a full-scale invasion. When the battle was over and the Lamanites were driven from the land, the Nephites counted the bodies, and they found that there were over 3,000 fallen Lamanites and 279 fallen Nephites. That's a rather lopsided tally. I'm not sure whether that's because of the Lord's protection or because the Lamanites were attacking a walled city or both. Zenith responded to this initial attack by installing a system of guards to keep the Lamanites from approaching or attacking undetected. And it seemed to work. The people were industrious and prosperous for the next 22 years, harvesting crops, making clothing, and so on. But then King Laman died, and he had a very aggressive son who replaced him on the throne. This son, the new king, 
encouraged his people to attack the Nephites. However, with the Lord's help, Zenith's people prepared for battle and successfully resisted this next Lamanite invasion. Much of the rest of the chapter is dedicated to discussing the traditional hatred of the Lamanites toward the Nephites. According to the Lamanite tradition, Nephi and Lehi were villains whose wickedness caused the Jews to drive them out of Jerusalem. And then Nephi usurped Laman's rightful leadership and stole the brass plates from him. Verse 17, And thus they, referring to the Lamanites, have taught their children that they should hate them, referring to the Nephites, and that they should murder them, and that they should rob and plunder them, and do all they could to destroy them. Therefore they have an eternal hatred toward the children of Nephi. Zenith then concluded his part of the record, saying he was old and had given the kingdom to, quote, one of his sons. The name of this son was Noah. And as we will see shortly, perhaps he should have chosen a different son. And then he died. Now we move into chapter 11. King Noah is a Book of Mormon case study of why having a king is a bad idea. Most artwork shows King Noah as a bearded, obese man, but that's simply imagination. Although the evidence is not completely certain, we have several hints that he was lean and athletic, and we'll get into that evidence in a couple of episodes, not today. What is certain, though, is that King Noah had a harem, and that he liked to party, and that he did not like to party alone. His heart, quote, was upon his riches. And he spent his time partying with his wives and concubines. He planted vineyards throughout the lands and made a lot of wine, which the king and also his subjects enjoyed. And Noah's priests spent their time hanging out with harlots. I found no evidence that King Noah was a tyrant oppressing his people. He imposed a 20% tax on them, and he used those funds to support his lifestyle and also that of his priests, but it also paid for vineyards where he, quote, made wine in abundance, and therefore he became a wine-bibber and also his people. His people didn't just join him in drinking either. Noah had many wives and concubines, like we said above, and it, and it says he also, quote, did cause his people to commit sin and do that which was abominable in the sight of the Lord. Yea, and they did commit whoredoms and all manner of wickedness. How could a king cause his people to commit sin? Rather than being an oppressive tyrant, perhaps a better image is of Noah being a frat boy with lots of money who used his money to pay for everyone else to have fun. When it says he caused his people to commit sin, maybe he was holding raunchy parties with lots of wine. And thus, it says, quote, thus he had changed the affairs of the kingdom. Were the people bothered by the change? It doesn't seem so. Here's Mosiah 11.6. And thus did the people labor exceedingly to support iniquity. Yea, and they also became idolatrous because they were deceived by the vain and flattering words of the king and priests. For they did speak flattering things unto them. If we fast forward a little bit and preview one of the chapters that we're going to cover in our next video when Abinadi comes with his warning message, it wasn't the priests or the guards that took the prophet Abinadi captive. It was the people. Here's Mosiah 12, verse 8. And many things did Abinadi prophesy against this people, and it came to pass that they were angry with him. And they took him and carried him bound before the king and said unto the king, 
Behold, we have brought a man before thee who has prophesied evil concerning thy people, and saith that God will destroy them. Now, coming back to chapter 11, while it may be true that King Noah funded his lifestyle of wine, women, and song with attacks on the people, I couldn't find any indication of them complaining about it. If I'm wrong and you can find an example, please let me know in the comments. I would love to be corrected on that. Maybe the resistance simply went unrecorded or more likely maybe the people liked how Noah ran the kingdom. Maybe they liked the wine. Nowadays, people read tabloids or watch videos that celebrate the debauchery of celebrities. Maybe King Noah's people were the same and liked watching him. Maybe they liked watching their king shenanigans, especially when sometimes he allowed them to join in. My point is, this wasn't the case of an oppressive king taking advantage of the people. He instituted a culture of booze and promiscuous sex, and his people happily went along with him. And Noah didn't just use his people's taxes to throw parties, though. He also used them to build things. He built a, quote, spacious palace for himself with a throne made of fine wood, which was decorated with gold and silver ornaments. He hired workmen to modify the temple by adding gilded elevated seats from which his high priests taught. It says that he further modified their seats by adding a breastwork upon which they could, quote, rest their bodies and their arms while addressing the people. His workmen also decorated the temple with fine work of fine wood, copper, and brass. It's interesting that although he decorated his palace with gold, there's no mention of gold being used to decorate the temple itself other than his high priest's upgraded seats. Noah also built a very high guard tower near the temple, which allowed him to see far into the land of Shilom and the Lamanite land of Shemlon. A second large tower was built on a hill north of Shilom to further protect against any sort of Lamanite invasion. Remember last time when I said that the Nephites didn't live in the jungle? A high tower would not be much help in the jungle. The construction of towers to watch the enemy indicates that the terrain had sparse enough trees that sentries could watch the enemy's activities from a great distance. There were large open spaces and clearings. In any case, the Lamanites began to sneak into the land and to murder small groups of Nephites as they tended their flocks. Noah responded by installing guards throughout the land, but it was not enough. The Lamanites killed the Nephites and, quote, drove many of their flocks out of the land. I assume when it says they drove their flocks out of the land, that they were stealing them by driving them to Lamanite lands. Thus, by murder and theft, the record says, the Lamanites began to destroy them and to exercise their hatred upon them. Noah sent his army to resolve the matter. They scored a small victory and temporarily drove the Lamanites from the land. Verse 19, And now because of this great victory, they were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. They did boast in their own strength, saying that their fifty could stand against thousands of the Lamanites. And thus they did boast, and they did delight in blood, and the shedding of the blood of their brethren, and this because of the wickedness of their king and priests. At this point, Mormon, the narrator, introduces Abinadi. Our knowledge of Abinadi's origins is a single phrase. There was a man among them whose name was Abinadi. God called Abinadi to cry repentance to the people, and he did so. 
Beginning with the latter half of verse 20, we read Abinadi's message of pending doom, lest they repent. Here he is speaking on behalf of God. Woe be unto this people, for I have seen their abominations and their wickedness and their whoredoms, and except they repent, I will visit them in mine anger. And except they repent and turn to the Lord their God, behold, I will deliver them into the hands of their enemies. Yea, and they shall be brought into bondage, and they shall be afflicted by the hand of their enemies. Notice that Abinadi is condemning the people. If they were being oppressed by a tyrant, he would not have condemned them. And that supports what we said earlier, that they liked what King Noah was doing. We'll see more of this with the people defending King Noah in the next video as well. My point here is that Noah was not a tyrant. He was giving the people what they wanted. Abinadi told the people that unless they repented in sackcloth and ashes, the Lord would not answer their prayers or hear their cries for help. His message filtered its way through to King Noah, and he accused Abinadi of stirring up trouble and making his people angry with each other. Noah and his people were having a good time, and Abinadi was totally killing the vibe. Therefore, says Noah, I will slay him. Verse 29 says that public opinion was against Abinadi and his teachings, and neither the people nor the king repented. Now the eyes of the people were blinded, therefore they hardened their hearts against the words of Abinadi, and they sought from that time forward to take him. And King Noah hardened his heart against the word of the Lord, and he did not repent of his evil doings. As you can probably guess, this isn't going to end well for Noah and his people. And that's all we have for today. Now we'll end with a trivia question. If you know the answer, leave it in the comments. The city of Lehi-Nephi was a big deal. It's the land that two different expeditions left Zarahemla and traveled south to possess. So here's the question. How many times is it mentioned in the Book of Mormon? You obviously don't know this answer, but see if you can figure it out and then put your answer in the comments. And we will see you next time.